Every year, on her birthday, Laura gets a letter from a stranger. That stranger claims to know the whereabouts of her missing friend, Bobby. I love you, Laura. But there's a catch. He'll only tell her what he knows in exchange for something personal. So begins Laura's sordid relationship with her new pen pal, built on a foundation of quid pro quo. Something for something. Her quest for closure will push her to bizarre acts of humiliation and harm. Yet no matter how hard she tries, she cannot escape her correspondence demands. The letters keep coming, and as time passes, they have a profound effect on Laura. For she knows, deep down, that she can't trust a single word, he says. No Sleep Podcast presents Dear Laura by Gemma Amore Chapter 3 Once the dark had turned its gaze on the forest, there was no stopping it. Soon Laura was surrounded by the full force of the night, and moving on became impossible. Every space grew treacherous, every surface unreliable. It was summer, so the night would be short, and dawn not that far away. But she was afraid she had no time to wait for it. She was supposed to be at her destination by 7.30 the next morning. The last letter had been very clear about that. 7.30, or I will come after your boy, and I will take him like I took Bobby. Eventually, as she struggled to make her way along the route she had plotted on her map, wondering whether to press on or rest, the decision was taken out of Laura's hands. It was too black a night for her to reliably keep the course. Every misstep she took in the dark jolted her swollen, tender ankle and brought her immense discomfort. When she crashed into a low-hanging tree branch, almost spearing herself on another pointed twig and narrowly missing puncturing her right eye in the process, she admitted defeat. Even though her heart was intent on moving forward, only forward, she offered herself to the night. Because sometimes, all you could do was give in. Sometimes, you had to let the night win. Lose a battle. Win the war. And the heavy towel-wrapped bundle in her backpack, tugged at her mind. 
Once Laura resigned herself to sleep, it came quickly. There was little point in fighting the dark. It comes for everyone in the end. Better to accept this and work harder when the light returned. Laura bundled herself into a small, aching ball at the base of a rhododendron bush, wrapped a tinfoil survival sheet around her shoulders for extra warmth, and closed her eyes. And for the first time in many, many years, Bobby came for her in her dreams. Hey, Dork. Hey, weirdo. Where have you been? I missed you. Ah, I had a ton of homework to do. Plus, Mom grounded me for staying out too late the other day. Who were you out with? Just a friend. You said I was your only friend. Yeah, you are, but I'm allowed to hang out with other people, doofus. So what's this new friend like? He's cool. He's older. And uh, he smokes weed. Did he let you smoke any? Yeah, I've smoked it before. It's no big deal. What does it feel like? Man, it's kind of cool. Relaxing. It makes you feel a bit stupid. You laugh a lot. So you just hang out and smoke weed? Sounds boring. Nah, we do other stuff. What stuff? Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Why not? He doesn't like when I talk about him to anyone else. But I'm your best friend. Yeah, but still, he has all these rules and stuff. And he's a bit weird sometimes. Rules? What I'm allowed to say to mom and dad, uh, where I have to meet him, what time of day, the clothes I have to wear. He tells you what clothes to wear? <laughs> that is weak. Why do you hang out with such a weirdo? Uh, hey, you want to try and sneak into Army of Darkness? The plaza is showing it at six. Isn't that like an R rating? There's no way we can sneak into that. Anyway, aren't you grounded? Not anymore. Laura? Yeah? Why didn't you try to find me, Laura? What? It's cold down here in the soil. What soil? Why didn't you try to find me? I miss my mom. I miss my house. I thought we were friends. I don't... I don't understand. Why are you crying? Why didn't you try to find me, Laura? <sighs> Laura woke with a racing heart, cold dread filling her from head to toe. The alarm on her watch beeped insistently. Dawn was already ahead of her, spreading its pale fingers through the fronds of ferns, nudging awake the birds and the trees all around. A squirrel leapt from one limb to another above her head, chuckling away to itself as it did so. A small shower of pine needles, knocked loose by his movements, drifted down onto her head, where they remained, for she was too tired to brush them away. Her dream faded to obscurity as quickly as spilled water disappearing through a crack, and although she knew she had been dreaming about Bobby, she couldn't remember anything more than that. Her mind was foggy, and it was hard to get a grip on her surroundings. She knew, however, almost immediately after waking, that there was something wrong with her body. It was racked with a feverish type of shuddering that she just couldn't seem to control, like a palsy. She added this new discovery to her growing pile of inconveniences. How many more obstacles could there be in her way? She hastily crammed an energy bar into her mouth and tried to quell the shakes. She followed this up with a handful of painkillers from her first aid kit and washed it all down with water that was still refreshingly cold, thanks to the cool night air. She had to tip her head back a ways to get it. There wasn't much left, 
But she didn't plan on being out in the forest for much longer, so didn't feel the need to be conservative with it. She checked her watch. 4.45 in the morning. She needed to be where she needed to be by 7.30. She calculated that she had just under three hours to travel another five miles, which should be more than achievable. She thought that, and then she stood up and put weight on her bloated ankle. Once again, her screams echoed around the forest. <laughs> Three days after Laura's 14th birthday and her first letter from X, one year and however many days after Bobby Evely disappeared, Mr. and Mrs. Evely held a memorial service for him. Technically, Bobby was still listed as a missing child on the police files, his case marked unsolved, open. Tara Evely had been very outspoken about this definition, because missing child encompassed a range of scenarios in the eyes of the law at the time. A child who had left home voluntarily, a child who was abducted, or a child who had simply gotten lost. All very, very different things. And what the term missing child didn't specify was the likelihood of whether or not that child was still alive. There had been no public acknowledgement that anyone thought Bobby was dead. Not yet, despite the passage of time, and no explicit mention of foul play. The prevailing opinion amongst those involved in the case was that Bobby had, indeed, run away. This belief was largely fueled by Laura's testimony, something which made her very uncomfortable, and fed Mrs. Everly's unjust, yet furiously intensifying loathing of her. Because Laura knew better. Or did she? Had Bobby willingly run away? Or been tricked? Coerced? Laura wished she understood what it was that she had seen that day when the blue van disappeared, but she didn't. She didn't know what she had seen. Not really. The Evelys held a service anyway. Something concrete for them to do, as they waited in vain for their golden boy to return. Despite there being no body, no burial, and no specific use of the word death, the service still had all the uncomfortable, itchy trappings of a funeral. It was held on a Sunday in the local church, and there were candles, poems, large framed photographs of Bobby wreathed in flowers and football memorabilia. His smile echoed around the congregation, all of whom wore black. Laura stood alone at the back of the church, her own parents absent because of work commitments, and she felt hatred for the first time in her short life. Hatred for Bobby's mother and father and little brother, and rage, pure white-hot rage. Rage that burned through every filament of her being because this service was an admission of only one thing, that everyone else was giving up on Bobby. She vowed then, as she looked about the church and saw other pupils from her school holding hands and crying, boys and girls who had never spoken to Bobby in their lives, who never knew him at all. She vowed, as she took in the smirk of a small kid from four houses along, who was pulling a funny face at his sister, bored. She vowed, as she let her eyes settle for a moment on the careful, neutral expression of the priest as he delivered the Lord's Prayer. She vowed, as she clutched a printed hymn sheet with white-knuckled hands and screamed internally, that she would go along with the letters written by the man she only knew as X. She would do whatever the mystery man wanted, if it meant that she could find answers to it all. She may have been too young to understand the circumstances surrounding Bobby's disappearance, but she was not 
too young to understand what closure meant. She was not too young to feel the agony of not knowing. She crept away before the service ended, wanting to avoid all the other attendees. As she left, she made a mistake and glanced backwards into the church, where she met the eyes of Tara Evely, who was watching her leave. Her gaze was dark and dangerous, and her tears bright, glittering on her cheeks. Laura felt the burden of that stare all the way home, where she found another dirty envelope waiting for her on the doormat. She opened it and read the following words. Underwear. Laura blinked. She had been expecting, well, not this. The statement didn't make any sense at first, so she went back over the word and then kept reading. Underwear. One pair of your panties. Not clean ones. Used panties. Folded up in a plastic bag. Leave them on your front doorstep tomorrow morning, behind the small tree in the pot on the porch. When this is done, I will give you your first clue. I want to be able to trust you, Laura. Help me to trust you by doing this. Yours, with respect, X. Confused, Laura put the letter down and walked away from it, feeling sick to her stomach, the skin on the back of her neck prickling as if someone were breathing on it from behind. No way. No way. Red spots of embarrassment pooled on her cheeks. Humiliated and deeply disturbed, Laura nonetheless found herself with a decision to make. The letter had said no police. But what she was being asked to do was wrong, and she knew it. The next step should be to inform an adult. The next step should be to throw the letter away, burn it, and forget it ever happened. But then, what about Bobby? The child that she still was wanted desperately to fix everything, to bring him back. And this letter might... It might just be her chance... And really, what did she care about a pair of old panties when it came down to it? If she could just give Mrs. Evely some answers, maybe the woman wouldn't hate her as much as she did, or continue to blame her for Bobby's disappearance. It never occurred to Laura that it was unfair of Mrs. Evely to blame a teenage girl for something as profound and terrible as the loss of her son. Crushed by the weight of responsibility, and exhausted by the idea that even if she told her parents what was happening, they might not believe her or take it seriously, Laura's resistance crumbled. She did as she was told. She went upstairs to the bathroom laundry basket and pulled out one pair of her plain cotton panties. She found a plastic bag and folded them up inside, a hot, lurching, urgent feeling in the pit of her tummy. Then she tucked the plastic bag behind the small potted bay tree by her front door, out on the porch, just like she'd been told. Afterwards, Laura hid in her room, ashamed and terrified of what she had just set in motion, knees drawn up to her chest, blankets wrapped around her shoulders, and a pillow over her head held there until she almost suffocated herself, a useless, pathetic shield against the boogeyman lurking outside her front door. Eventually, she decided to check for any more letters, in case her mother came home from work and stumbled across something she shouldn't. 
She extricated herself from her soft bed cocoon and crept downstairs, checking to see if there were any large shadows moving behind the frosted glass before opening the front door a tiny crack wide and peeking out. The bag with the panties inside was gone. In its place, there was another yellow envelope. Inside that was a scrap of paper, which looked, on closer examination, like a fragment of a map that had been torn up, although she didn't recognize any of the scant few place names on the fragment. Most of it was green, featureless, denoting forest. Upon this map fragment, she found the first clue, such as it was. Laura frowned as she tried to decipher what she saw written there. Two long numbers with multiple decimal places, accompanied by two strange symbols, one before each number. Coordinate 50.9025. Coordinate minus 1.6340311. Which made absolutely no sense to her whatsoever. The symbols before each long number were oddly shaped, one looking like a stylized knot in a piece of string or a pitchfork, and the other like a wigwam or a witch's hat. She had never seen symbols like that before, and she briefly wondered if they were math symbols, like those used in algebra or geometry, but then decided that didn't feel right. She didn't know why, but she knew they were important. She knew she had been given something. She just couldn't figure out what. After the numbers and symbols, the stranger had written three simple sentences, and it was these that confused her most of all. I loved him, you know. I loved Bobby. Yours, with respect, X. This would have been a good point for Laura to have burst into tears. But she didn't. She took the scrap of paper back upstairs and pinned it to her notice board, where she could lie in bed and look at it. The numbers, after an hour or so of staring at them without comprehension, burned into her brain, committed indelibly to memory. She slept, and digits danced around her as she stood apart from the rest of the congregation in a candlelit church, the sound of Mrs. Evelie's weeping rising and falling like the tide all around her. After the first clue, there was nothing. No more letters, no more scraps of paper, no more codes. Laura waited, heart constantly in her throat, so that she felt as if she were always swallowing, always massaging her neck to get her heart back into the right place. Sure that any day now there would be another letter, another request, another clue, another tit-for-tat. She waited, and disappointment became another rock to carry. A rock painted a different color, but a rock the same size and weight as the rocks she already bore. Those smeared with the colors of guilt and grief and shame. She could not stand the thought that she was being fooled into sending underwear to a mysterious pervert taking advantage of Bobby's disappearance. Laura held a thin belief that people were inherently good, not evil, although that belief was eroding quickly. So she waited, but her patience was met with one thing, a resounding silence. Still, she had the codes and numbers, and that was better than nothing. She eventually figured out that the strange symbols were the symbols for latitude and longitude, respectively, and the numbers on the scrap of map that X had left for her pointed to a geographical location. 
That was why each number was so long, with so many decimal places. Each number was a line, and according to an encyclopedia she found in her father's study, all she had to do was draw the latitude line first on the right map, followed by the longitude line. Where the lines crossed was the location of the coordinates, which made her brain hurt a little, but it was a welcome distraction to thinking about Bobby. Her father, by stint of his employment at a surveying company, happened to own a vast array of local topographical maps. Laura made it her business to look at each and every one of them in his possession, holding the green scrap of paper she had been given up to each map to find a match, feeling like a crazy person as she did so. But what else was she going to do with her time? She had no interest in schoolwork and no close friends to hang out with, so she pored over maps instead, pretending she was a detective, and eventually, her dedication paid off. She found a match. The green scrap of paper found its twin imagery on a map of the old forest, a vast and sprawling woodland that lay to the west of her town, about 20 miles away. After plotting the lines, heart pounding with excitement, she finally had a location, a spot in the middle of a road that ran through a part of the old forest she'd never been to. From that point on, Laura became convinced that this was where Bobby's body was buried. It consumed her every waking thought, that one single location. It dragged her out of her grief and threw her into action. She got a job delivering papers, worked hard every day, saved her money, bought a compass, bought a brand new topographical map of her own, took a bus, then walked to the exact spot in the old forest that the coordinates pinpointed, and found herself standing by a quiet roadside next to an empty parking lot, which was little more than a ragged square of mud and decaying asphalt, on a place called Stony Plain. To either side of her, there was scrubland, ringed by the huge, far-reaching mass of woodland that stretched into the horizon and beyond. Behind her, there was more road, leading back the way she'd walked. In front of her, a freeway bisected the horizon, bracketed by cattle guards meant to stop livestock from wandering into oncoming traffic. Aside from a dog walker loitering in the distance, she was alone, and she cut a forlorn, thin figure as she dithered on the roadside. It had taken all her energy to get to this point, and now she was here, she didn't really know what to do. She scanned the ground to either side of the road, couldn't see anything that looked obvious, like a grave or a trench, and then sat down wearily on the scrubby verge. What am I doing here? She let her head drop into her hands, and then the last words in the last letter, the words that kept her up at night, raced through her mind. I loved him, you know. Moments later, she gave in to the realization that Bobby wasn't there, after all. That she was on a wild goose chase. Embarrassment and shame landed heavily on her. The dog walker shuffled past as she sat there, a picture of misery. He was accompanied by a large black and white collie dog on a lead. He stopped, eyeing her curiously. You all right, miss? He stooped so that she could better hear him. The man was large and tall, very tall and very broad. But Laura didn't register this, didn't even look up. If she had, something in her memory might have been triggered. Instead, she hid her eyes behind her hands and refused to answer, furious at the intrusion. The man waited, wrestling with himself internally, then spat into the verge. 
Suit yourself. With that, he shuffled off, the dog trotting at his heels obediently. If Laura had been watching, she might have noticed the man's reluctance to leave. If Laura had been paying attention, she might have seen that he held an envelope in his free hand, a dirty, yellow envelope very similar to the type she received on her birthday. And she might have seen that he wore a strange, excited smirk on his face, too. But Laura wasn't paying attention to anything except her own predicament. And eventually, she realized she couldn't stay out here for the rest of the day. So she retraced her steps, got back on the bus, and arrived home to an empty house with all the lights off. Drifting upstairs, pale and weary, she collapsed on her bed and didn't move from there for three days. Eventually, Mrs. Scott realized that all was not well with her daughter, realized that she was, in fact, not eating, not drinking, and not going to school. She sat on Laura's bed on the morning of the fourth day, registered the pallid, drawn face, the thin, ghostly limbs, and the hollow, sunken eyes. She realized with a burgeoning sense of sorrow that this was confirmation of something she had long been trying to ignore. That her daughter, despite all outward appearances of resilience and strength, was really not okay. She put in a request to reduce her hours at work, and then took Laura to see a doctor. The doctor loosely diagnosed her with nervous exhaustion and wrote a prescription for some pills with a long name that Laura couldn't remember. Laura took the pills for a week and then started flushing them down the toilet. If anything, they made her feel even more numb than she already did, coating her thoughts in an unpleasant layer of fuzz. The silence from X continued. After a time, Laura learned not to wait for the sound of the doorbell or the quiet rustle of something being pushed under the door. It became painfully apparent to her that she had been the butt of a particularly cruel joke. She continued to grow in both height and pain, and the memory of Bobby's face softened further until he became like a smudged finger painting in her mind. And she blamed herself for forgetting him like this because she considered it her duty to remember him when everyone else was, apparently, moving on. And then, her 15th birthday dawned. And finally, after a year of radio silence, nestled in amongst the birthday cards on the doormat, she found the letter she'd been waiting for. Dear Laura, did you miss me? Laura's teeth began to hurt. Dear Laura was written and adapted for audio by Gemma Amore. Produced for the No Sleep Podcast by Phil Mykolski. Musical score composed by Brandon Boone. Starring Kristen DiMercurio as the narrator. Mary Murphy as Laura. Matthew Bradford as Bobby. And David Cummings as X. Join us next week for Chapter 4 of Dear Laura.
This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyright for Dear Laura is held by Gemma Amor. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.